0: Uh, let's pray uh, together and uh, give heed to the preaching of god's word let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are our God, and you are sovereign over all things. you are sovereign over the weather, you are sovereign over Boilers and all kinds of heating apparatuses. we ask now, Lord, that you would uh, be here as I preach the Word. Help us, Lord, in um, a somewhat uh, uncomfortable situation because it's a little colder than usual. Help us to uh, to pay attention, Lord. Uh, help me to make uh, the word clear. May the message be concise, but faithful to what the scriptures are teaching. And may we apply these truths to our life and to our soul. Help us, Lord God, to trust in you and to flee to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, if you would please turn with me to the Gospel of John. And again, for those of you that didn't hear, because of the weather, And the boiler and those kinds of things, we're going to, uh, the service will be a little shorter. So we sung, we prayed, I'll preach. The offering will be up here, the offering tray after the service. You could put your offering there, and um, then we'll enjoy a nice snowfall on our drive home. Uh, John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and really this is a. A continuation of last Sunday's sermon, where in John chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 37 through 39. 37 through 39, our focus this morning will particularly be on verse 39. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. Hear the word of God. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Amen. As we saw last week, Jesus here on the great day of the feast, he stands, and as the Jews are practicing, their religious leaders practicing uh, water rites or uh, rites and ceremonies that um, that involve the use of water, pouring out water and praying for water and all of these various things, Jesus stands as all of the men who came to Jerusalem, which every man was and commanded to during this feast, the Feast of Booths, and their wives and their children, and all of these people were there, Jesus stands and He declares this, this wonderful truth, that if anyone is thirsty, they can come to Him and drink freely. And as we saw last week, this is a call, of course, to believe in Jesus, to trust in Him alone for our salvation. And He says that those who do believe in Him out of their hearts, out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And now in verse 39, John, the author of this gospel, gives a brief commentary on verse 38. John says this, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in Him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. These statements are amazing, and uh, don't we all wish that every paragraph of the Bible had one of these little comments? Because this, of course, is an inspired interpretation or explanation of what Jesus was saying. Now let's take a look at this in some detail. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit. What what was it that he spoke? The words in the previous verse, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. As I noted last week, this refers to the activity of the Spirit in a person's life. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is the activity of the, Holy, of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. This was promised in the Old Testament in Isaiah 44.3. The Lord promised, I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the ground. I will pour my Spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Of course, now, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is representing himself as the source of living water. In other words, Jesus accomplishes his work in his people by the power of the Spirit. That is how Jesus works in the life of his people. So, this is what Uh, John is referring to when he says here, but this, this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. The whom there, of course, is the Spirit. Believers, as he says here, those believing in him would receive the Spirit. And the language there, uh, you know, those believing in him, that that can be a little tricky, but uh, you can translate it this way the one who believes. Everyone who believed in Jesus at that time, and of course everyone who, believes, who believed in Jesus thereafter would receive the Spirit, does receive the Spirit. And John is making the point that everyone who believes in Jesus will have the Holy Spirit. Everyone who believes in Jesus will have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is a theme that continually comes up in the Gospel of John, that Christ is the one who gives men the spirit. In John chapter three, verse five, when John is preaching, John is uh, preaching oh, excuse me, in uh, John chapter three, verse five, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says to him, "Most assuredly, I say to you." unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John, in chapter 1, when he is preaching, he says that Jesus will baptize believers in the Holy Spirit and with fire. So this theme continues to come up, that Jesus, in some way, he communicates the Spirit to his people. Well, how is it that Jesus does this? What what is John talking about here when he says that this work, this activity that Jesus makes reference to, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, and that Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit, that unless one is born of water and the Spirit, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is all this language of the Spirit? What does it refer to? First and foremost, um, it refers to uh, regeneration. Or, uh, more common language, it refers to the new birth. That is what Jesus is talking about here. One of the passages when we were preaching through John that we focused on in particular was Titus chapter 3. And you can turn there with me. In Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 4, Titus chapter 3, beginning at verse 4. Here Paul, speaking of God's kindness and love, it says this, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we had done, God's disposition towards his people is not dependent upon the works of his people. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Through, and here's the language, the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, And this language through Jesus Christ, our Savior, as a, when we believe in Christ, we are born again. Uh, we'll, we'll, uh, I'll develop that a little more as, as we uh, get a little farther here uh, in this train of thought. Paul also makes this point in several other places in the, in the epistles. One, one note here. Um, we're so... Uh, the nature of this particular kind of sermon, right? So what we're doing in this kind of sermon is, we want to understand, because this is the question that arises when we read this text. When he says this, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. So immediately when we read a passage like that, what we think is, so So the believers here don't have the Spirit yet. Because that's future. And then another question that comes to mind is, well, how about Old Testament believers? Did they have the Spirit? And how about, uh, what, what is it then to receive the Spirit? And why does Jesus have to be glorified so that we might receive the Spirit? So those are the, the, the kinds of questions that, uh, that maybe you don't think th- about those kinds of questions, but I sure do. But those are the kinds of questions that should naturally arise when we come to a passage like this. And uh, those are the questions that I'm seeking to answer in this sermon. So the first, of course, is, 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 uh, um, has to do with uh, this whole, the, the, the whole question of uh, Jesus bestowing the Spirit upon his people. Jesus is the one who gives his people the Spirit, in other words. And you see this in Titus. And Paul, again, makes this point in the book of Romans. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 8 through 9. Romans chapter 8, and I'll begin reading from verse 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 8. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, So how do you know if someone is in the Spirit? Well, Paul would say, well, if the Spirit of Christ dwells in that person, that person has the Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not Christ. He does not belong to Christ. So, um, how, how do you untie a passage like this one, right? How do you interpret this? Just think about it. In the reverse, right? So, conversely, if you are Christ's, you have the Spirit. Every Christian person then has the Holy Spirit. Every Christian person possesses, has the Spirit. If you are a believer, rivers of living water will flow out of your inmost being. And what this living water refers to, of course, we looked at this last week in some detail, is the activity of the Spirit will be present in your life. And faith in Christ grants or bestows the Spirit upon a person. Now, of course, faith itself is a gift of the Spirit. And you ask, well, how, how can that be? How can So God commands what he gives. God commands what he gives. God commands people to repent and believe the gospel. And yet repentance and faith are gifts that are granted to us by God himself. So then, now just this little phrase now would receive, would receive. So when John begins the verse, he says this, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit. That, that phrase at the end of verse 38, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And faith in Christ um, is, is, is uh, what is commanded in the text. Now, would receive. What, what does he mean by this? The meaning is that the age of the Spirit, I quoted this last week, the age of the Spirit had not yet arrived. The Spirit was not yet at work in the way He would later be because Jesus had not been glorified. That's what he means. So, believers would receive future tense. Why does he say this? Because the Spirit was not at work during this period of time the way that he would be at work when Jesus is glorified. Jesus has to be glorified so the Spirit can work in the way in which John is describing here. Now that just makes everything more confusing. But but uh, notice, uh, I'll make th- I'm going to make three points here to help clarify. This is first, the Spirit was active and working in believers before the glorification of Jesus. The Spirit was active and working in believers before the glorification of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter one. Verse 67. And this is Zacharias, John the Baptist's father. So uh, um, Jesus is about to be born. Uh, John the Baptist is born. And we read these words. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Now his father... Zacharias, John's father, was filled with the Spirit and prophesied, saying. Now, it doesn't say here that the Spirit came upon him. This is, this is language that's used in the New Testament to refer to the activity or the work of the Spirit in the life of God's people. Zacharias is filled with the Spirit. But this isn't the only passage that speaks this way. So the Spirit was active and working in Zacharias as he says as he preaches this beautiful sermon that connects the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Christ as fulfillments of the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant. And we're not going to take a look at what Zechariah said. This is the main point, that the Spirit filled him. It was filled with the Spirit. Now look at First Peter. 1 10 through 11 and uh, again i'm making this is my first point my for, first point is that the spirit was active and working in believers before the glorification of christ christ is not glorified yet in the sense that john is uh, referring to here he says because jesus was not yet glorified this is going to happen later yet the spirit is at work so first peter 1 verses 10 through 11 and here Peter is talking about the gospel, right? He is talking about the message of salvation, the message that those believers who he is, whom he is writing to have believed upon and trusted in. And in verse 10 of First Peter 1, 1 Peter 1.10, he says this, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully. And he's talking about the Old Testament prophets. So the salvation that he is exalting in and he is saying belongs to these believers, the Old Testament prophets, they they inquired and searched carefully, which means that they studied the scriptures. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. So this is amazing, right? So... uh, As an example, uh, Isaiah is preaching about the coming of Christ and he is searching the scriptures that he has for the coming of Christ. And verse 11, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ who was in them? Was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, of course, the Holy Spirit, was indicating when. He testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And, and of course, the, the reference here, you know, we could spend a lot of time on this particular passage, but the reference here that I wanted to know is that the Spirit of Christ was in them. So, this, 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 uh, um, many people teach that the Holy Spirit did not indwell, that he did not fill believers before Pentecost. And that's just not true. These two passages are. Uh, explicitly clear that the Spirit was active and working in believers before the glorification of Jesus. The second point that I want to make here is that this is not a reference specifically to Pentecost. This is not a reference specifically to Pentecost. So, In Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out on believers. But that is, uh, as Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2, in fulfillment of a particular passage in the Old Testament. Look at um, Acts chapter 2. And of course, at the end of L- the Gospel of Luke, remember Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. And there's a connection that uh, between those two books. They're supposed to be read together, where Jesus makes this promise. He says, hey guys, stay in Jerusalem till I send you the gift from my Father. And that gift, of course, is the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Jesus repeats that same promise. Acts 1, 9, uh, 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now you have the coming of the Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, we read these words. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, um, when a person believes, I I don't know if... uh, So, when a person believes, this is not what happens to them. It didn't happen to me, and I, you've never, I don't think it's ever happened to anyone here. When you believed in the Lord Jesus, did a little puff of fire appear over your head, and did you start speaking in other languages? And then that's what he's talking about here, this other tongues, right? Uh, the, and uh, this is why. Uh, I, I think that's what the point is here. Look at verse 8. How is it that... We hear each in our own language, in our own tongue, in in the language that we speak. Literally, the word here is dialect. So, how is it that we hear in our own dialect in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites. Those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Pontus and Asia. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own languages the wonderful works of God. So isn't, is, this is not a secret prayer language that the devil doesn't understand. right? But my point is not to make, I'm not trying to make that specific point in this sermon. My specific point is that This is not what Jesus is talking about. Because uh, note what John says explicitly. But this, this, rivers of living water flowing out of a person, but this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Everyone believing in him would receive the Spirit in the way that that Jesus was just describing as rivers of living water flowing from the heart. And if we're honest, Pentecost is not a description of that. Pentecost was a miraculous event that was used by God in a period during the church where the majority of the church was Jewish and One of two things happened. God gave them the power to speak in other languages, or as they were preaching, he enabled those who heard to hear in their own language. One of two things happened. And that's not what Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of John. He's talking about something else. And Pentecost was miraculous. Now, Pentecost is for us, and we need to read the book of Acts, and we can learn from the book of Acts and apply the book of Acts, but we also have to do it with a, ma- with a level of discernment and understanding, right? That these are historic, this is part of the true history of the church, and these are things that really happened, but they were for a time. They were for a time, for that time in particular. So my first point was that The Spirit was active and working in believers before Christ was glorified. And we we will deal with, uh, what does John mean by Jesus being glorified? We'll we'll take a look at that. My second point was, this is not a reference in John to what happens in Pentecost. That's not what he has in mind. The third thing is that the Spirit, in the sense that Jesus is talking about in the Gospel of John is active and working in believers now. Remember the text. right? He says, He who believes in me. And Jesus has been glorified in the sense that uh, John refers to. It's something that would happen later in Jesus' ministry. And it has already happened. So as John is writing these words, um, he has a particular audience. That's what we have to remember. These words are not Jesus' words in the Gospel of John. Now, I'm not saying that to mean it's not inspired. I believe in inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. That's not my point. But this is a note for readers to understand. These are not the words of Jesus to his hearers but John's words to his audience, to his readers. And it's a commentary on what he's saying. Because John's audience is primarily a Gentile audience. That's why he's got to explain particular words and particular customs in the Gospel of John. You'll note it if you read the Gospel of John. He's always making these little side notes. Oh, this is why this happened. And this is what this refers to. Right. So these are John's words to his audience. Now, here, here's a, a little bit of a uh, of a here, here's another one of these commentaries that John makes, and you have a little clue as to what he means with what he means by the giving of the Spirit here, or receiving the Spirit. Look at John eleven. Look at John eleven, and also this, of course, this will open up the discussion. Um, of what it means that Jesus had to be glorified for the Spirit to be given in this way. In John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45, the commentary by John is in verse 51. But we'll read from verse 45. I promised that we would leave here early. (laughs) Look at verse 45. Then many of the Jews... Who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. And then the chief priests and Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. Isn't, isn't that terrific? Right? Somebody should have stood up and said, Isn't that terrific? Isn't that what we want? They're acknowledging that he's doing the signs. At this particular point, they're being brutally honest. There's no denial. He's doing it. And everybody's going to believe in him. But look at what drives and motivates them. And the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. Now, this is an important text also because remember what Jesus says in John chapter 7 when he's talking to his brother. He says, my time has not yet come, but your time is here always. You guys live for, you guys live for the glory and the praise that you receive from men. That's not what I live for. And here they're confessing it, of course. Verse 49. Now, one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the many, and not that the whole nation should perish. Now here's John's commentary. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So by his death, Jesus gathers into one Jews, the nation, and the children of God who are spread abroad, Gentiles. This is what John's commentary on the words of Caiaphas tell us. This is an aspect of Jesus' glorification that John focuses on in the gospel repeatedly. That Jesus' death would be the means by which Jews and Gentiles are gathered together. And now if you were paying attention to what I said, you would know that And we'll see it here in this next text that we're going to look at. By glorification, in John chapter 7, verse 39, what John is talking about is the crucifixion of Jesus. Now that's not what... So when we use the word glorification theologically, as theological vocabulary, what we generally mean is the state or condition that we will be in when we receive our resurrection bodies. Right? So there is a very true sense where that is glorification. But that is not the aspect of glorification that John is talking about in John 7. Jesus' glorification in the Gospel of John, or one aspect we can say of his glorification in the Gospel of John, is when he is lifted up on the cross and he is seen as the Savior of the world. Jesus is glorified in his crucifixion. Look at this passage in John 12 now. And now remember this comment, the commentary of John, that Caiaphas makes this quote unquote prophecy, and the prophecy is focused upon Jesus in his death uniting the Jews and the nations. Now look at John 12, 20. John twelve twenty. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. I forget what preacher it was, but he had that engraved on his pulpit. when Before he preached, that's what he would see. Sir, we would see Jesus. And uh, yeah, that's the way that preachers should preach, to help their people see Christ in all of his glory in the scriptures. But the Greeks come. And Philip and Andrew, excuse me, and, and Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. So the Greeks come. The Gentiles come to Jesus. And Jesus says, verse 23, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now that the Gentiles are coming. And, and what does he mean by glorified? He's going to tell us. Verse 24, most, most assuredly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. He's talking about his death here, how his death would be fruitful. He would die and produce much fruit in his death. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, uh, I read that, 25. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And of course now, because Jesus is about to die, this great shame would come upon his disciples. And what happens? They're, they're all scattered. And he's saying to them, don't, don't, you know, don't scatter completely. Continue to believe in me. Now look at verse 27. There's so much more could be said about these passages, and they will, a lot more will be said when I get to those chapters. I'm trying to, get to a, I'm trying to help you see that in the larger picture of the Gospel of John, what does glorification mean, and how does it connect to the giving of the Spirit and the union of Gentiles and Jews? So, you have to read a lot of verses to do that. Now, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? What hour? And remember in John chapter 7, Jesus doesn't go up to the city because his hour had not yet come. Father, save. And then he says to them, Where I'm going, you cannot come. And they get upset over that. Remember in John 7. Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. For what purpose? to give his life as a ransom for many. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father glorified his name in fulfilling all of his promises to the people that he would send them a prophet, a priest, and a king and that they should hear him He sent his son into the world. So the father kept his word and glorified his name. And the father says, and I'm going to glorify even more. How am I going to glorify my name even more? Because you're not just coming into the world to preach and to teach. You're coming into the world to die as a ransom for many. Therefore, the people who who stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. And now the ruler of this world will be cast out. You know, what he means by the judgment of this world is he means the the judgment upon this present evil age. Because the devil now has been cast out down from heaven. Remember, in the Gospel of John, uh, in the Synoptic Gospels, excuse me, Jesus says to those who are listening to him. He says, "I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning." The judgment that he is talking about here is not um, is a good judgment. It's an exercise of God's power, where now the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's not been consummated, but it has been inaugurated. And the kingdom of God is inaugurated in the death of Jesus. This voice did not come because, because of me, but for your sake. Now, you know, some of that, what, which I just said, you might think to yourself, I don't understand what he's saying, but just keep coming and it'll stick. <laughs> you, you, it, it'll, it'll stick. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. To be lifted up uh, um, means to be exalted. Well, how is Jesus going to be lifted up from the earth? On the cross. He's going to be lifted up upon the cross. And on the cross, he draws all people to himself. That is where men see Christ as the Savior upon the cross now look at verse 33 and you might think to yourself no i don't think that's it look at verse 33 this he said signifying by what death he would die what death would he die he would be lifted up he would be lifted up upon a cross so how would he be lifted up upon a cross how will he draw all people to himself on that cross And this connects this language of being glorified and being lifted up now why is so so here's a here here's a this question is intended now to draw us deeper into the subject and to help us understand it more because the um we've got all this information but why right why why is it that Jesus must be lifted up uh, why does Jesus have to die so that we can receive the gift of the Spirit? Because really, that's the question. That, that is what John is getting at in John chapter 7. That, that would have been an easier way for me to say that to you, but it would have saved us. The, we wouldn't have gotten to all these passages of the Bible. But the point that John is making here is that um, for the Spirit to be given in the way that John is talking about in John 37, Jesus must die. Jesus must die so that we can receive the Spirit in the sense that John is talking about in John 7. Why is this the case? So, because we are under a curse. That's why. The only way to be delivered from this curse that we live under is if someone who is worthy takes our place and bears the curse for us. So uh, what is the opposite of a curse? Blessing, that's it. So for us to receive a blessing, someone must be cursed in our place. Right? So, you might be thinking to yourself, you know, what are you talking about here? (laughs) I thought we were talking about the Holy Spirit. We are. Now look at, so, uh, more passages. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And... We're going to begin by looking at verse 13. Now remember, right? Remember, re- remember John, right? So on the last day of the great feast, Jesus stands up and he cries out, Anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And of course, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. This is who he's talking about. He's talking about the activity of the Spirit in the life of a believer. And this kind of activity, what he has in mind in particular when he's preaching this sermon to these uh, Jews is that when I'm glorified, I'm going to give my Spirit this way to my people. Okay. And what I'm saying is that Another way of describing that is that Christ must be cursed so that we might be blessed. So Galatians chapter three, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's from Deuteronomy. Why? Right? That. This is, why, this is why Christ must be cursed. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. In other words, the blessing of Abraham is the gift of the spirit. And I remember the Greeks come to Jesus and Jesus says, when the Greeks come to him, that that signals something to him. And he says, oh, now, now it's time for me to be glorified. And I, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jews and Greeks, Gentiles. One commentator makes this this point, very helpful point. He says, The gift of the Spirit is now designated as the content of the promise to Abraham. It is the guarantee or pledge of the perfected redemption which Abraham was promised. And all through faith. That is, by way of believing excuse me that is by way of a believing appropriation of the preaching and uh, that's just fancy talk for saying that you believe the, the what the word the word that's preached believing appropriation of the preaching and quite without merit or works so without works how do we receive this gift of the Spirit and the blessings of Abraham? By faith. That's how you do it. By believing. At, now, now, here, now here, remember, I, uh, uh, I, I felt kind of squeamish saying that at the beginning of the sermon, you know, that faith is the means by which we, we receive the Spirit. But that's, that is true. But, you know, that, that, that makes, sometimes when people hear that, they think that I have to do something to get the Spirit inside of me. He adds this point, and this is helpful. At bottom, faith, too, is a fruit of the Spirit. At the same time, faith is the means by which, and the way in which, God grants the gift of the Spirit to the redeemed by Christ. So God works in us what is necessary for us to receive His gifts? He's so gracious and kind and good. That shouldn't trouble us. That shouldn't trouble our thinking. What that should do is magnify God's grace towards us. Okay, so um, if so, if you're not picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> here is, here's, here's what I'm putting down here. What, I'm, what, what, what John is saying in John chapter 7, verse 39, is that when Jesus is glorified, when he's crucified, when he dies, he is going to give the Spirit, he is going to give the blessings of Abraham to everyone who believes. And the operative word there is everyone who believes. Jews and Greeks. Jews and Greeks. They might get the boiler going and I'll just keep preaching if it gets hot. hot (laughs) Well, tell me. Take off your sweater when you're hot. Uh, (laughs) So... Uh, Look look at this. Uh, So so I'm going to develop that more, even more, right? That idea that the gift of the Spirit, in particular, believe what John has in mind in in light of other scriptures is the blessings of Abraham and given to everyone who believes, both Jews and Gentiles. And in that way, the Spirit had not been given. Because before Jesus was uh, uh, crucified, what did you have to do to become a follower of God? You had to become a Jew. You had to be circumcised. You have to take up the 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 biblical traditions that were given. Look at Galatians four, four through seven. And, and notice, of course, when we looked at Galatians 3, the point there was Jesus had to die so that the blessings would come. Now look at Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 4. And it's, in essence, it's the same truth expressed a little different. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, uh, under the curse of the law, under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And he's talking to Gentiles, right? He's talking to Gentiles, and he's saying that Christ came into the world so that we might be adopted into God's family. And remember, the spirit is a spirit of adoption. The spirit had not been given in that way. That the Spirit had not been given in the sense that it would unify a people, Jews and Gentiles, together as God's people. Verse 6 Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, if you're an heir, what does that mean about you? It means you have an inheritance, right? And uh, where is that inheritance from that I get? Who was it given to first on earth, I mean, on an earthly plane? Who was the first person who who it was revealed to them that they would receive an inheritance from God? His name starts with an A. Abraham. 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 Remember in Galatians chapter 3, he just finished saying that that the blessings of Abraham might come to all who believe. That is the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying here that God has poured out the Spirit in your own hearts. To what end? So that we might be adopted into God's family and become heirs. Heirs of what? Heirs of the blessings of Abraham. The same commentator who wrote, and his, this is my favorite commentary on the book of Galatians, besides Luther, and Luther, Calvin, and um, Herman Ritterboss. He writes this The conclusion of, and there in verse 7, where Paul writes, Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. The conclusion is that the believer as son. Is also heir. this is a return to the subject of chapter 3 the argument is still concerned to prove that the inheritance guaranteed to Abraham is also intended for the believers from the Gentiles though solely through God's gracious disposal and divine purpose in salvation in other words it's solely through faith now, one, one, one more set of passages in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians. Uh, but I think I've proved my point. Um, but in Ephesians, look at how Paul says it. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Ephesians two fourteen, and and now remember that those contexts where Christ must die, that we might receive blessings, right? And remember that, that 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 motif, I guess, or, or, or uh, verse fourteen. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, both Jews and Gentiles. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Let me stop there. So, what what is he talking about? He's saying, what he's saying is this is that in Christ, when Christ died, and, you know, this is sort of a return to our Sunday school class. When Christ died, in his dying, in the sacrifice that he offered, he, he nullified, he made void the entire Jewish system of worship. So the Levitical priesthood and all of the sacrifices and all of that way of worship, he, he nullified all of it. And if you remember when we discussed the priesthood of Christ in Sunday school, that now Christ serves under the priesthood of Melchizedek. It's a greater priesthood. And that priesthood, since it it is established on greater promises, basically removes the Levitical priesthood in that way of worship. And in doing that, the distinction that existed cultically in worship between Gentiles and Jews was removed so that you're no longer special if you don't eat pork. Right? That's a simplistic way of of putting it, but you know. Verse 16 and so he makes peace between the two and the two there is not between God and man, but between the Jew and the Gentile. Look at verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross. So how does he do it? So you have, you have uh, 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 Jews, you have Gentiles, and when Christ dies, he removes the enmity, he makes the two one, and then he makes them one body, and then he reconciles that one body to God through the cross, through his death thereby putting to death the enmity between them and between each other. And then, so he brings them together, and then between them and God, and he brings them together. He brings Jews and Gentiles together, and then that group of people together he brings to God. They, ha- they had, you know, to use old slang, they had beef with each other. And they had beef with God, and he removed both. Now there's no beef, no beef. (laughs) And he came and preached to you who were afar off, Gentiles, and to those who were near, Jews. Now look at this, right? He was talking about his death and the union that his death brings. Now look at this. For through him, Jesus because he is the one who gives us the spirit, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access by one spirit to the Father. And Christ, when he dies, pours out his spirit in such a way upon his people that he unites Jews and Gentiles, makes them one, and brings them to his Father. Look at verse 19. Uh, look at verse 19. Now, therefore, because, because of this truth, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Remember, we're, now we're children of Abraham. We belong in that household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets the preaching of the word, the doctrines of scripture, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, because that's who the the apostles and prophets preach about, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And remember when we talked about corporate presence during the Lord's Supper, that when the people of God gather together, the Spirit is there indwelling them corporately, not just individually. That's this idea here. Being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit or by the Spirit. So so what Jesus is talking about or John, is commenting on is this truth. What he's commenting on is the corporate and abiding or internal indwelling, right? Internal. The corporate and abiding, unifying blessing of the Spirit. He brings us together, corporate, He indwells us individually and He unites us as one. And in that particular way, the Spirit is given. Now, remember uh, what I said uh, that when He talked about rivers, um, rivers of living water flowing out of your inmost being, what He's talking about is the activity or the work of the Spirit. And notice... Uh, we have to skip over a section, but Paul in chapter 3 focuses upon the mystery of the gospel, the, the, and that he was given this responsibility, this great responsibility to be a preacher and a herald of the gospel. Now, um, that's an important part of the book of Ephesians, because what he's doing is he's writing to Gentiles, He's telling those Gentiles that you are one now with those Jewish believers who are among you. And I was tasked, chapter 3, with the responsibility of that, declaring that truth to you. But this is important now. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Verse 1 of chapter 4. And this, you have to keep those big ideas in mind. That Christ died to unite a people by the power of his Spirit... Paul is charged with preaching that mystery which was in the Old Testament. And now look at chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Why would he have to write that? Because... The, there, there are these, uh, these objective, the, these uh, indicatives, right? A statement of fact. Jesus died, and in his death, he brings peace between people who are different. Jews and Gentiles, that's an indicative. That's a statement of fact. But then you have imperatives that go along with that, commands. Because of that truth, then do this. And he's saying, so he developed all the theology. The, the reason why you can't have peace is because of chapters 1, 2, and 3. You can't have peace. Now I'm going to tell you, have peace then. And this is what Jesus had in mind when he says that rivers of living water will flow out of you. That's the activity of the Spirit. That's, that's the work of the Spirit. And what John... Is commenting on is he's saying that's going to happen later to everyone who believes in jesus both to jews and to gentiles that kind of activity that work that unifying or how i put it that corporate abiding unifying blessing of the spirit that's going to happen later and now paul is living later he's living after jesus has been glorified and he's talking to jews and he's talking to greeks and what does he say to them in verse three Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. So we have one Spirit, we have one hope, we have one Lord, we have one faith, we have one baptism, we have one Father. So if you're thinking, you know, where's the application in the sermon? That's the application in the sermon. Because we are part of those who would believe after the glorification of Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we living as men and women, corporately together as a people, are we living as men and women who have rivers of living water flowing out of their inmost part? If so, what will we be marked with? Lowliness. We're going to be humble with each other. We're not going to put on airs, or be prideful, or try to exalt ourselves. We're also going to be gentle with each other, which, there, um, you know, it sounds clichéish, but you know, kind and courteous with each other. Soft, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. What, what does, if if a person, let's say you were to describe one of your neighbors, and you say, um, you know, in light of his marriage, he's very long-suffering. What would you be implying? That there's somebody who's busting his chops. <laughs> right? So... What this, what long-suffering implies is that there are going to be people who are Christian people in the church who will bust your chops, right? They just, you know, we're made different. So you may rub each other the wrong way. But what do you do? Do you, do you basically decide, I'm never going to talk to that person. I'm going to sit at the complete opposite side of the church, never make eye contact. No, that's not what you do, right? You, of course... You confess your sin to God, as all Christians ought to. You memorize and meditate upon those places in the Scriptures where the virtue of long-suffering is magnified, and it's magnified most completely in the life of Jesus. You you think about one conversation with Peter. He should have, you know, killed him, (laughs) right? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? You're the King of Israel. That's who you are. And he says, Peter... You know, I'm going to die. And Peter says, you, you, come here. You don't know what you're supposed to do, right? You don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. You're supposed to be the king of Israel, and you're talking about dying? You're wrong. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He, Peter rubbed him the wrong way during that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and what we have to remember is that that's going to happen. That, that is going to happen. Therefore, we have to endeavor To endeavor after something means you you work long and you work hard and you strive towards that goal. Why? Because it's a reality that can be attained. Why? Because we have the Spirit. He's ours. He indwells us. Therefore, uh, you know, um, uh, I watch a documentary on um, Hussein Bolt, you know, track runner, right, and the kind of stuff that they do to shave, I mean, milliseconds off of sp- sprints and, and runs, right, like the way that the shoes are designed or shoestrings or whether you should even have shoestrings, should you wear socks, what kind of, you know, material your shorts are made of, how short they should be, how tight they should be, how long your hair should be when you're running, should you have facial hair, I mean, all of this stuff, right? so that he could endeavor to to shave a millisecond 2 milliseconds off of his runs so he can break world records but he can do whatever he wants to do he will never he will never be faster than light and he will never be able to fly right he would be endeavoring in vain if that was his goal right if he believed the atheists right who think that you know Birds developed wings by jumping off of mountains <laughs> until they decided to grow a pair of wings. Or, you know, <laughs> they don't think that specifically, but stuff like that. Um, he would be de- endeavoring in vain, right? He would be working and laboring, and not, he's not going to be able to attain that goal. But since we have the Spirit, we can labor to attain the goal, which is y- this unity, Love and fellowship with each other. Communion with the living God and with his people corporately. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he says that these rivers would flow, right? These streams, what he's talking about is the activity of the Spirit. And the gift of the Spirit, right? Um, And the gift of the Spirit, of course, is this rich blessing, the blessings of Abraham. Abraham these promises of a community of believers and of sanctification and of the power and the presence of the Spirit. So I'm, I'm happy that the boiler didn't work because I would have been preaching until one o'clock. <laughs> uh, so uh, brothers and sisters, in light of these things, let's pray. Let's pray that Christ, who has ascended into heaven, would Refresh us with these gifts of the Spirit. Let's, let's pray. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the gifts that you have given us. Particularly, of course, the gift of the Spirit. The blessing that you promised Abraham, Lord. We... Individually and as a people, your people, we have an eternal inheritance that can never be taken away. And that, Lord, should give us great peace and a great desire to be lowly and gentle and to to have long-suffering and to bear with each other, Lord, in love. We ask that you would do it because you have given us your spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.